Spy Talk, a podcast at the intersection of intelligence, foreign policy, national security, and military operations with Jeff Stein and Gene Meserve. Hi there, I'm Jeff Stein. And I'm Gene Meserve. Welcome to another episode of Spy Talk. That's the Metropolitan Opera and a special benefit concert for Ukraine this week, performing the Ukrainian National Anthem. Now on to the show. Lawrence Wilkerson, as many Spy Talk listeners know, was a longtime close aide to Colin Powell, the former Army General, Chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, and Secretary of State in the George W. Bush administration. Since then, he's carved out his own place in our national dialogue on foreign affairs, So I wondered what he was thinking about Vladimir Putin's invasion of Ukraine. And a Russian put it this way for me, uh, from Moscow the other day. He said to me, Vladimir has become a man who wants to see his statue on Red Square 500 years from now with the inscription that says, Vladimir Putin, more than Catherine and Peter with regard to Russia's history. That's retired Army Colonel Lawrence Wilkerson. I'll be back with more of him later in the show. But first, Gene has some expert insight on the fraught state of Ukraine's nuclear power facilities. There are many horrifying aspects of the Russian invasion of Ukraine. One is surely Russian troops firing on Ukrainian nuclear power plants, igniting fires, raising the specter and real possibility of a release of radioactivity potentially more devastating than the Chernobyl disaster of 1986. Ukraine's President Volodymyr Zelensky made it clear that such a tragedy would be felt far beyond Ukraine's borders. God forbid that it should. Our men were always keeping the nuclear power plant safe, so there were no provocations. Nobody could just go and take over the nuclear power plant, plant explosives there, and then blackmail the entire world with nuclear disaster. The Russian military has to be stopped. Call on your politicians immediately. Ukraine has 15 nuclear reactors. If there is a nuclear explosion, this will be the end of everybody, the end of Europe. Rolf Moat Larsen is a senior fellow at Harvard University. He had a long career in the CIA, including two tours in Moscow, followed by a stint as head of intelligence at the Department of Energy. I asked him if it was any surprise that Vladimir Putin's forces had moved to take over nuclear power plants. No, I'm sure that when the Russian military planned its uh, invasion, that they included a contingency to go probably grab, occupy all four power plants and Chernobyl, which is, of course, not active because it's part of Ukraine's strategic uh, infrastructure and energy grid. So it gives him a way to choke off Ukraine, in other words. I don't think we we should presume we know what his strategic purpose is, other than he's going to try to seize all strategic objectives. And certainly nuclear power plants are part of that objective. I think he also probably is thinking that he wants to control them to increase his flexibility. I doubt that they've made a decision to use them in any way so far, for example, to extort, uh, put more pressure on the Ukrainians by turning them off. I think it's more of a security uh, feeling he has that he wants to control them 
for uh, to ensure that the Ukraine that there, in fact, the very things we worry about, that there won't be any accidents involving the plants, et cetera. Is it an attempt to terrorize the Ukrainian people in a way? I don't think so, Gene. Uh, nuclear uh, terrorism would in no way serve his objectives. Uh, you can't control a sabotaging a nuclear facility where, where the wind might blow, so to speak. We learned that, of course, with Chernobyl in the Soviet days. So I don't think he has any plans to use the plants per se to terrorize the Ukrainian people. But is the threat, the possibility that he could use them, does that raise the fear of the Ukrainian people? I wouldn't characterize it that way. I mean, we, we, we struggle enough with, with nuclear-related fears as it is. And there are many things to worry about in terms of how the Russian went about occupying Zaporizhia and, 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 and Chernobyl. So I think we have enough to worry about without stoking the fear of that, that it would be used in some way to terrorize the Ukrainian people, because it doesn't really serve anyone's interest to do that. He, I mean, frankly, he can terrorize Ukrainians the way he's doing right now by firing missiles and bombs and indiscriminately killing people, which is just horrific what's happening in Ukraine without using the nuclear facilities to do that. Does it intimidate the West at all? Does it, does it change the, the risk-benefit analysis for NATO? I don't think the nuclear power plants per se, the reactors and the sites, is something that he wants to use in that context. Because again, it's hard to imagine how they can be used in any way militarily. Any attempt to turn them off or sabotage them hurts Russian uh, people potentially as much as it hurts the Ukrainian. I don't think Putin wants to do that. We, I think the greater fear, which a lot of analysts have been talking about, is that the Russians might in fact use a tactical nuclear weapon of some sort against NATO or as this, as this uh, conflict, this war expands. And do you think that that's a genuine possibility? I think the possibility that Putin could either become so desperate or uh, have in his calculations to use tactical nuclear weapons, I think that threat is not zero. That risk is not zero. I don't see any moral calculus in Putin's decision making that would preclude him from using nuclear weapons. And he doesn't have this... Uh, innate fear that the West has about these weapons repre representing something morally reprehensible in warfare and therefore never be willing to use them for the same reasons why the, the U.S. administration is worried that he might use chemical or biological weapons. He might certainly use nuclear weapons if he felt they would somehow advantage on the battlefield. If the threat is not zero, what number would you put on it? I won't put a probability on it. I would say it's low probability. I, I think if you put a number on it, you have to be able to substantiate the number, right? So I don't have any basis to calculate a number, but low probability, I think, captures it in the sense that I think it's been assumed, even as we went into this war, that that probability was zero. I think it's very important, and I'm sure the Biden administration and the Western Alliance, NATO, they're considering that possibility as we move forward and ensuring that they're ready for it. So if there is a nuclear escalation of some sort, remembering that when Vladimir Putin finds himself in a difficult position, his, uh, his pattern of behavior suggests he escalates to get out of, the, out of that situation. In that escalation, particularly if the war seems unwinnable, and frankly, I don't see how he wins this war, he starts on the battlefield. Even if he were to take over the major cities in Ukraine, 
Uh, he's facing a resistance that he did not expect. We're seeing confirmation of that now by the, these uh, house arrests by the officers within the Russian intelligence establishment that were supposed to give him good intelligence about what to do here. They obviously failed. So I, I offer you all this because the nuclear card is, I hate to use that expression, but using nuclear weapons, it boils down to a strategic decision based on where the war's going. Uh, I think we can expect to not see a nuclear escalation unless there's a series of events that greatly um, increase the unpredictability of this war, and particularly if the Russians begin to see that they're losing it. The Ukrainians have claimed that the takeover of the nuclear plants is an effort to create a pretext for a false flag attack. Do you buy that? I don't know. Uh, I, I can't give a, a, a good, you know, reasoned explanation based on those facts. I would say that when we saw the Russian military go take the, the two plants so far that they've taken out of the five in the country, they were very worrisome military um, activities in the sense that they didn't seem to understand the danger that by firing and creating fires in those facilities, they could in fact create a Chernobyl event. So that's where I see the real, the real risk of miscalculation at these other plants, or for example, not paying enough attention to ensure that they continue to operate after they've occupied them, according to international nuclear related uh, safety and security regulations. And to that, to that extent, we're seeing disturbing reports that uh, the, the, the crews are, the, the officials at the sites are being made to continue to run it under gunpoint, <laughs> at gunpoint, and that they're not getting any rest, and there's very little information coming out of these facilities. Those are very bad decisions by the Russian authorities, by the Russian militaries. Uh, there should be complete transparency, even in a war, regarding the safety and continued safe operation of nuclear facilities. That's what I worry about the most. And in that, of course, there's a potential for terror. I don't think it would be deliberate. I think it would be because the Russian military doesn't know what it's doing, which we have seen indication that they don't. <laughs> and these plants were not designed uh, for a war zone, correct? No, they're not. And they weren't designed to send troops in to take over them and then have battle pitched battles uh, at the nuclear sites. I, I've read, I can't confirm, of course, uh, that the other sites uh, that remain uh, in Ukrainian control are being defended as well. So the the, the real terror here, if there is it, uh, I don't think would be deliberate, but that doesn't make it any less dangerous, which would be uh, wanton, undisciplined Russian military action, uh, battles at the sites that could potentially cause, you know, radiation release or worse. So that's what... Um, that's what I think we have to worry about moving forward. And all efforts that the International Atomic Energy uh, Agency and others are making to engage with the, with the Russians and Ukrainians are extremely important right now to ensure that these plants are don't get caught up in between the, the war. And it's very possible, of course, given the undisciplined nature of the way the Russians are prosecuting the war. The Ukrainians have suggested the possibility of a no-fly zone over nuclear facilities. Is that workable? I doubt it. Uh, when I heard that, I thought this is probably just as problematic as it is uh, in general. And I think the Russians will read into it. And they're, they are <laughs> uh, very prone to, uh, I would say, to accept conspiracy theory related reasoning, which is one reason they got themselves in this mess to begin with about NATO being a threat to Russia. I think it's very hard to, to say on a military basis that NATO poses actually any kind of direct threat 
to Russia. So I think when you look at the nuclear facilities and how they feature in this war, I think it's very important that information be exchanged going in both directions, what's going on at the site, ensuring that any concerns about communication and that the reliability of the people working there and their ability to take care of any problems are addressed before they become bigger problems. So in other words, there's no issues that uh, they might they might, not, they might not continue to be uh, safe, uh, powered or something like that. That would that would be very bad. If there were a release, accidental or intentional, what would the impact be? Hard to judge because we don't know exactly how big the release would be, but could it impact Russia? Yes, any release would would be uh, say non-discriminatory. It wouldn't. You, it's the same problem, by the way, with chemical and biological weapons. Weapons of mass destruction. That was my expertise after 9/11. We were trying to stop terrorists from acquiring uh, chemical, biological, and nuclear weapons, and that was a very problematic because we knew terrorists wouldn't care where where things spread or or if it caused casualties on their side when they flew airplanes into into World Trade Center. They knew there were Muslims in those towers too. Whereas even Russia, as brutal as they are and as cruel as this war looks up to this point, does not want uh, an attack of any sort that's indiscriminate to that extent, where you don't even know who you're killing or you lose control. Uh, when you fire a missile into an apartment building or a hospital, that's incredibly indiscriminate. I know, I know the listeners are saying, what is he talking about? But chemical, biological, or, or nuclear release would, would be totally different. The, the wind can blow as much in uh, north into Russia as it could kill Ukrainians, and I suspect they don't want to kill Ukrainians that way anyway. Again, there are much simpler ways to try to win this war for Russia brutally than there is to get into this. Uh, I imagine when the uh, Biden administration released the information, they've had, I call a brilliant strategy of declassifying, releasing information to try to preempt certain things, or at least let the world know what the Russians were really thinking. They did that with chemical and biological weapons, I assume, when they began to say that Russia was thinking of a false flag to use those kinds of weapons. Maybe they'll say the same thing if we get any kind of a hint that they're looking at uh, any nuclear-related moves that they make uh, as they've done with chemical and biological weapons. They certainly have raised the level of concern um, in Europe. Is there any way to prepare for the possibility of a nuclear release? There's not much of a way to prepare for that. Again, I at the time when Chernobyl catastrophe occurred, I was living in Stockholm, Sweden, actually, <laughs> and uh, that uh, huge radio, we followed closely that huge radioactive cloud hit the atmosphere and then be taken all over Europe in direct hit over Sweden. And I, I had two children at the time, including a newborn uh, that uh, was, you know, exposed to, to that radiation. And you just sit by helplessly and, and watch. Uh, we don't prepare for things that shouldn't happen. There shouldn't be those kinds of releases. And when they occur, unfortunately, we're, we're generally not prepared for them. Most of us aren't going to go out in Montana and buy a bunker and, and prepare for nuclear Armageddon. It's just not practical. So we, we have to kind of expect that our best strategy with things nuclear is to prevent the accidents from occurring. And, and that's what you're talking about. Could there be that catastrophic an accident in Ukraine? Yes, there could be. But at the same time, I wouldn't want to fear monger and say it's a low probability. And I think it's in the interest of both sides to ensure that doesn't happen. So distribution of iodine pills wouldn't be enough. No, I, I it would not be. And uh, I, I think, again, let's not 
jump to that, you know, kind of thing. I remember to use another example after 9-11, when we were worried about Al-Qaeda using biological weapons, I don't know if you remember, Gene, but they came out with the guidance to everyone should tape their use duct tape. So suddenly it was a run on duct tape and everybody brought duct tape. Why duct tape? So you could so you could seal all your windows in your residence. I remember coming home after another 14 hour day or whatever those days and all my kids were you know, we couldn't get duct tape daddy because they ran out at the stores i mean again this kind of thing is what we want to avoid because it's not helpful to whip up hysteria so the key thing here is we're in a war we're in a terrible war accidents can happen there could be an, an accidental hit on one of these sites we and then the authorities need to be prepared for that and immediately jump in before a potential release could occur and the and, and get the plants under control and even discuss, hopefully, some mechanism of, of jointly doing that, uh, as impossible as that may sound. That's a more that's a more realistic thing is to think about joint action uh, in the event that there is some sort of an unintended military uh, bombing or strike on a, on one of the nuclear sites or reactors. Joint action with the Russians. Yes, I'm mean, again. We we do that. We we have even today some nuclear weapons related cooperation if we ever were need to do that i remember when i was in the department of energy there were uh, teams of russian and americans prepared potentially to do that if we were to have the worst case scenario somewhere and of course the iae thinks of iaea thinks of that the ukrainian authorities i'm sure are thinking about that and hopefully the russians are thinking about it too to the extent once they occupy one of these plants they're responsible to ensure that doesn't happen Bottom line, when you have people firing each other on the ground, that's probably the biggest risk right now. That's the risk I don't take for granted. And I think the worst case could spring from some very bad decisions that are made in the fog of war. So I don't want to say I'm feeling we're safe. I just want to ensure that we don't jump to any conclusions that this is somehow inevitable or likely part of this war. I think it's a manageable risk, but it is a very scary risk and something can go terribly wrong. Uh, in war, as we all know. So um, I, I want to balance my fear with, with uh, say, confidence that this can be managed as well. That was Rolf Moat Larsen, former CIA officer who did two tours in Moscow, also former head of intelligence for the Department of Energy and currently a senior fellow at Harvard University. Well, that was somewhat calming, but as he said, it's manageable, but scary. And that seems to sum it up perfectly. Yeah, Moat Larson says he's been engaging with former top Russian intelligence officials for years. And one thing he says they have always agreed on is the deep level of concern about nuclear accidents, nuclear sabotage, nuclear terrorism. That's why he's pretty confident that Putin wouldn't do this intentionally. But as he mentioned, it's the guys in the field with weaponry. And will they act responsibly? Will they use common sense? That's the question. Well, I would hope that there's some back-channel communication between the Pentagon and its uh, counterparts in uh, Moscow about keeping things calm in Ukraine around the nuclear facilities. We sure hope so. A reminder, you can find a lot of great spy talk content on Substack. This week, Jeff had a great story about hate speech flooding classified intelligence chat rooms. So subscribe to that. Subscribe to our podcast. Leave us a review. Follow us on Twitter. Jeff's at Spy Talker. I'm at Gene Meserve. 
And stay tuned because Jeff will have an interview about Vladimir Putin in just a moment. Now onto a wider lens on the Ukraine crisis. Lawrence Wilkerson became a harsh critic of U.S. foreign policy after it turned out that he and his boss, Secretary of State Colin Powell, have been duped by the CIA and White House into believing that Iraqi dictator Saddam Hussein possessed weapons of mass destruction. He's expressed great regret over his own participation in that tragedy and gone on to excoriate what he sees as the oversized roles of big oil, Israel, and military weapons contractors in the conduct of U.S. foreign policy. The latter, he says, is rubbing his hands with joy over soaring profits from increased weapon sales to Ukraine and Eastern Europe. Some listeners will no doubt find his views provocative, even disturbing, but it's our policy to offer a wide range of opinions on this podcast. Larry Wilkerson, welcome to Spy Talk. You have had a front row seat on the history of the Cold War's end to the rise of Vladimir Putin and his kleptocracy. You were surprised by the full-fledged invasion of Ukraine, I think. Um, Why were you surprised, and what do you think we should be doing now? I was surprised to a certain extent because I have seen Vladimir Putin as a very able, pragmatic, even extremely talented strategist, capitalizing time and time again, whether it be Syria Georgia or wherever on U.S. mistakes and conserving his power as he did so. He's playing from a very limited hand of cards while we have a a hand of cards that's vast, economic, financial, military, and otherwise. So he's been beating us all over the map. Mm. And to do what he's done now, and I think it's becoming ever more apparent that this is the case, is truly tragic, but also out of character for him given his past. Do you suspect that his designs go beyond Ukraine now? I don't think they go beyond Ukraine, but it's hard to say where they might go if his appetite is whetted in the right way. That's just the way history works, I think, especially with people who are becoming, I think, somewhat megalomaniacal. Mm-hmm. And a Russian put it this way for me uh, from Moscow the other day. He said to me, Vladimir has become a man who wants to see his statue on Red Square 500 years from now with the inscription that says Vladimir Putin more than Catherine and Peter with regard to Russia's history. Mm. That's truly despairing if he's become that way. So, yes, I could see it going further. I don't simply because I think there's enough left in him of the strategists and the pragmatists that he realizes it would not only be the end of his reign and in an ignominious way, probably, but it might be the end of Russia for another 50 to 60 years as a reasonable partner for Europe. Russia is, after all, a part of Europe. Mm -hmm. People forget that. Mm -hmm. Now, we seem to be almost inviting him to take Moldova and move more deeply into Georgia by being so firm about drawing the frontier of NATO um, at Poland and Germany uh, uh, and uh, so on. 
There is a sneaking suspicion in the back of my mind that uh, because I've been there, I've seen this happen, not to this extent, but I've seen things like it happen, that there are some oligarchical elements to this in Europe and the United States, and perhaps even in Russia, that would like to see a real mess because it's very profitable for mm. them. It sells arms, it sells things associated with arms, it gets everybody all up as far as shareholders of people like Lockheed Martin, Raytheon Grumman, and their equivalents in Ukraine and Russia and elsewhere. It gets them very excited because it looks like there will be war and rumors of war for a long time, which is of course what gives them their profit margins. Um, that there would be some kind of insidious design to enhance, deepen, this crisis would not surprise me at all. I, I've heard you say in another forum, you called the CEOs of Lockheed Martin and other defense contractors, you've called them oligarchs. Can you expand on what you mean by that? They make their living off selling instruments of death and they make their living quite well. I think that Halliburton if I'm looking at the DOD figures correctly, and I think I am, I think it's even a conservative estimate, off of Afghanistan and Iraq, for example, made $44 billion. That's more than Pfizer made off, I think they made $26 billion, the, the COVID hmm. pandemic. Um, we're talking about real money here. And when you have real money, you have things like the Sinaloa cartel in Mexico, for example, or like any cartel of predatory capitalists monopolists who are exploiting a particular aspect of society in order to keep their profits pouring in and seem to not be satiated ever. They want more and more and more. Indeed, who chaired Bill Clinton's committee to explore the expansion of NATO? Lockheed Martin. Mm. Who was on that committee? Raytheon, Grumman, and others who worked for Dick Cheney when he was Secretary of Defense to privatize many of DOD's functions? Halliburton, who gave Dick Cheney a job when Dick Cheney left the Pentagon as Secretary of Defense? Halliburton. Mm. These people are oligarchs. But you're not saying that arms merchants, American arms makers, uh, provoked the war in Ukraine, are you? I hope not but I wouldn't put it past some of them who sit around their shareholder meetings and look at their publicists and say things like we even saw in the Wall Street Journal. Look at Ukraine. Things are booming. Profits are going to be greater. You should probably be buying our stock. Mm. And, do you, and do you think that they, uh, what, what, do you think their position has changed now that there's an actual shooting war in Ukraine? Well, I don't think they really are concerned too much about that. I've, I've seen too much of this. When, for example, President Trump sent 52 cruise missiles into Syria, Raytheon's line was salivating because that's over a million dollars per Tomahawk cruise missile. And the line was going a little bit uh, fallow. Well, you've got to have war to keep that line going. You have to have Poland buying F-16s to keep the F-16 line going. You have to have M1 tanks being made in Ohio. Even if you have three or 4,000 of them in the mountains that are just sitting in war reserve stocks because they'll never be used. Um, this is the kind of thing you do if you're this sort of oligarch and you have this kind of predatory interest in 
making money off the arms that you make. Well, but follow- People forget Ukraine. Ukraine was one of the biggest arms merchants in the world, too. I think they were fourth or fifth. The reason that situation changed was because they began selling the arms to themselves. <laughs> they knew they were going to need the arms, given Putin's stance towards them. So they began giving the arms to themselves. Yeah, but following your logic, then President Biden would have approved the transfer of Soviet-era MiGs to Ukraine to be replenished by F-16s. So, no, not not if you're Joe Biden. Thank God it is Joe Biden. Um, he at least has a grasp of international relations, foreign affairs, and security policy. And he knows that if that happens, then the trail to war with Russia is much more open and ready to be traversed, especially by Putin. So we don't want a nuclear war. And if we get into war with Russia, if we start shooting down their airplanes, that's the reason a no-fly zone is utterly untenable. I, I think Secretary Lloyd Austin, when he said that the other day, was very right. Um, if you start firing at Russian airplanes and they at you, and you start shooting them down and they yours, you're on a very slippery slope. You're headed for a wider war. And that war, inevitably, we are the two greatest possessors of nuclear weapons in the world. We used to have about 30,000 apiece. Well. At the end of the Cold War, we managed to get that down, and we're headed even further down to uh, somewhere around eight or 9,000 now each. That's still enough to destroy the Earth several times over. And Biden knows that. So you're not going to get in a direct conflict. And God, I hope we're not going to get in a direct there conflict. Se- there seem to be some parallels here with the late 1930s. Nobody wanted war with Germany in 1938. Uh, when Hitler began to move uh, uh, west uh, and the Allies ignored it, uh, allowed him to get away with it. And then there was, of course, a famous episode of Prime Minister Chamberlain going to Munich, signing a deal with Hitler that would give, give us, quote, peace in our time. Uh, Hitler uh, exploited that to move troops into Czechoslovakia. Um, so everyone wanted, everyone in the West wanted to avoid war with Germany, but the war came to us. Um, isn't there a chance of that happening now as much as we want to avoid a direct conflict with the Russians uh, that, uh, that, that Putin's going to bring the war to us sooner or later? I've heard that argument so many times, most powerfully and most idiotically advanced by Scooter Libby, Dick Cheney and others with regard to Saddam Hussein. The argument of appeasement and the analogous situation people try to create today is pure nonsense. Well, we're not talking about Iraq here. Well, I understand that, but I'm just telling you that was the argument that they advanced because it's a handy argument to go to and Churchill a handy person to reinforce your position Mm -hmm. with. It just doesn't work anymore. And it doesn't work for one preponderant reason, and that is that we both possess nuclear weapons. I would sit here right now and tell you that it would be worth five Ukraines, utterly destroyed, to keep the world from nuclear war. Nuclear war is not something you do or risk in order to save another nation state, especially not when that nation state has 45 million people who are going to fight Putin to the last bullet and the last round. 
Putin is entering his own graveyard right now. Uh, we should just let him go. Hmm. Uh, well, do as much as we can to attrit him, as much as we can to give the Ukrainians the, the ability to do what, for example, Tito did to 40 Wehrmacht divisions during World mm -hmm. War II. Um, but we shouldn't enter the fray. We have discussed uh, that prospect uh, on this show with uh, many former CIA officers talking about paramilitary aid to the Ukrainian partisans. Uh, you see that in the cards. I see that already happening. It's been happening since the sort of U.S. engineered coup in 2014. Hmm. And I must be very honest here and tell you we've been supporting the neo-Nazis. Hmm. It's preposterous hypocrisy to hear Washington talk about when Putin says, I'm going to denazify Ukraine, that there are no Nazis in Ukraine. There are Nazis in Ukraine. Zelensky has met with one of the prime neo-Nazis in Ukraine. Why has he met with him? Because he's a tough fighter and he's fighting the Russians. I don't blame we him. We need to make a distinction uh, between that neo-Nazi combat unit and the Ukrainian government. Well, I think so. I don't think the Ukrainian government, as it is presently constituted. Now, you go back to Yulia Tymoshenko or... Uh, my man, when I was nursemaid for him for a time at the State Department, Viktor Yushchenko, um, whom I think Putin poisoned with dioxin, or maybe some Ukrainian gangsters, something happened to him because I saw him and he went from looking fairly, mm -hmm. fairly decently to having a face that was just massively contorted. Mm -hmm. um, so w we've, we've had this sort of thing in Ukraine all along. It's not a, a, a bed for Jeffersonian Demo Democrats. No, but you're, you're, you're uh, not uh, uh, espousing the line of Vladimir Putin that the Ukrainian government is run by neo-Nazis, are you? Not at all. Not at all. The Ukrainian government, when it is run, when it is run, is run by oligarchs and others, both affiliated with Russia and with the EU and the West. Um, and on their own. Uh, that's what most of these governments today consist of, is oligarchs behind the scene pulling the strings, because that's what predatory capitalism gives you ultimately. And we are in a world right now where two powers on this earth, and many more that follow their lead, China and the United States, are the ultimate practitioners of predatory capitalism. That's why one reason why we're facing the climate crisis. Well, following your line, I would I would ask you then why is Ukraine worth defending? Um, my answer to you as a military professional would be it isn't, but as a humanitarian of some nature, I've got to say it probably is because you don't want those women and children as much as you have in your power to stop it dying in such a brutal way and at the hand of such a brutal man. One thing Putin has established in addition to his pragmatism and strategic sense is he's brutal. Um, brutal like Dostoevsky's Russians, brutal like Tolstoy's Russians, brutal like Pasternak's Russians. I mm -hmm. mean, you have some brutal Westerners to be sure, but you don't have probably as brut brutal people in the West as you do in Russia. And that's not a criticism of Russia. That's a statement about the history. Of yeah. Russia, whether you're looking at Peter, Catherine, or whomever. And, and the person who will tell you about that in spades is a good Russian. Yeah. Yeah. And there's been more commentary recently uh, 
about our problem with Russia is a cultural problem, not uh, a military problem. Um, and their problem with the world is cultural. You look at their history of opening to Europe, retreating from Europe, opening to Europe, retreating from Europe, and they are Europe too, so at least uh, west of the Urals. Um, and, you, and you see schizophrenia, really. You, you see a state that can't decide what it wants to be, and as it is making its various decisions for about the last four or 500 years, it has been incredibly brutal. It's also been invaded massively invaded multiple times. So I understand it's paranoia and I understand why it might be a little more brutal than it necessarily needs to be. Stalin, of course, was the epitome of that brutality. Speaking of brutality and the uh, uh, and it being hard to predict what Vladimir Putin is up to now, we didn't expect him to uh, invade Ukraine in the way he has. Um, what if he decides to move on other former states of the Soviet Union that are now NATO members, like in the Baltics, Lithuania, Estonia, Latvia. Are, are, I don't think... Should I don't, they I don't be defended? Yeah, yeah, they, they can, and I, I think that would truly be crazy, and I think he'd be overthrown by his own oligarchs, because they would know where that would lead. If you've watched the Russian exercises since about 2012, core size and army size exercises, you know that they have now developed a public doctrine. It's written down that they will use tactical nuclear weapons on the flanks and nose of any NATO penetration into the CSTO territory. CSTO being their equivalent to NATO, uh, of which of course, Russia is the prominent member. Um, that alone shows you how fearful they are of the disadvantage they're confronting when they take on NATO in terms of precision guided munitions. They know, and you can read this in their doctrine, they know that they would probably get wiped out if they were subject to the full power of NATO's panoply of PGMs, whether it's missiles, bombs, or what have you. Look at what they're dropping in Ukraine. We didn't drop an iron bomb in the war in Iraq in 2003. We did a lot of them in the first war, but all of our munitions were PGMs. You're talking about one bomb with 99% probability is gonna hit the target. So you don't need to use but one. You don't need to use 200 and hope you hit the target. This is a distinct advantage of NATO. And I don't think even a, a, a megalomaniacal Putin, and I know his generals and admirals wouldn't, would take that on. Not only that, they know too what it leads to. It leads to nuclear war. Now, Putin might get to the point where he's so unstable that he would contemplate that. And all I have to say is I hope they have a mechanism not unlike the one we do. And I know they did during the Cold War. I'm not sure about how it works today because he's adumbrated a lot of that, much to the chagrin of some of his military leaders. But they would step in. Much the way people were talking about Donald Trump you know, would someone step in if Donald Trump were to contemplate using nuclear weapons? Well, yes, someone would step in. The chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, the Secretary of Defense, you know, a host of people are in there in a position to step in and do something. I think that would happen. I hope it would happen in Moscow as well, because they're not suicidal. Of course, we've got to watch uh, what we wish for. <laughs> There's no yeah. assumption that someone better than Putin would take power anyway. 
It might be worse. It might be, it might be someone who really is in a sense that Putin is clever. If, if Russia were to get someone at the helm who was really devious and, uh, not unlike some of the some of the czars they've had, Catherine comes to mind immediately, and and played their deck right and kept their oil going and their gas going. Um, they could be a they could be a, a sizable threat. I mean, they're a sizable threat now, but they could be an even worse threat, particularly with nuclear weapons to back them up. Well, with those unsettling thoughts, we're going to have to leave it here, <laughs> Larry Wilkerson. Thanks so much. Let me let me say. Let me say one more thing. I think we need a new security architecture in Europe, period. We need the West, read Washington, to give up its desire for hegemony over Western Europe. We need Russia to give up its desire to reestablish hegemony over Eastern Europe. And we need the 740 million Europeans with a GDP, the equivalent of ours, to stand up and create their own security mechanisms and take their own responsibility for themselves. That's what we need. And Russia needs to be a part of that European standup. That's retired Army Colonel Lawrence Wilkerson. He's now Distinguished Adjunct Professor of Government and Public Policy at the College of William and Mary. You know, I talked to Moat Larson about Putin as well. Uh, he'd met Putin back in 1999, has been watching him for 20 years. He says he is who he is. He is brutal. He is ruthless. He is nostalgic for the former Soviet Union. He says he's a great tactical thinker, but not, he says, a strategic thinker. Otherwise, he wouldn't have plunged into this morass in Ukraine. Yeah. And as it's uh, as Larry Wilkerson said, it's, it's really out of the mold that Putin has established for himself as a very cunning strategist and tactician over the last 20 years and that he wants a statue to himself in Red Square, or used to be called Red Square. Uh, that'll make him the greatest leader since Catherine the Great. So we don't know where this is going. We're all holding tight on our chairs, hoping for the best. And we will be keeping up with the latest on Spy Talk, so join us again. Remember to subscribe to Spy Talk on Substack, follow us on Twitter, and join us again next week. I'm Jean Meserve. I'm Jeff Stein. Thanks for listening. See you next week. For more original reporting and insights like this, subscribe to spytalk.co on Substack and follow us on Twitter at talk underscore spy. If you enjoyed our podcast, subscribe and leave a review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts.